Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. This week, we have another biblical passage that awaits us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig. And on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are on in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. So now we will walk through each verse of this psalm, as we'll see that it is a a psalm of praise, a call to praise, and then some reasons for that praise, and it ends with praise. And we'll also end by just kind of asking, so what? What does any of this have to do with me today? What does this matter to me now? And I hope by the Spirit of God you'll be uh, convinced that it matters a lot, that these words have the potential to really encourage us or even change your life and for the better. So before we begin, we first want to note that Psalm 113 is the first in a section of six psalms that the Hebrews knew as the Egyptian praise psalms, as they were related to the time uh, that they were brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea and so forth. The Also, they're known as the Hallel psalms, and the word Hallel or Hallel means praise. And so this Hallel is a Jewish prayer, which is a verbatim recitation from Psalm 113, that was used as an act of praise and an act of thanksgiving, and they would recite this psalm in particular uh, on joyous occasions, but also in a liturgical way as part of their Passover celebration that was done annually uh, on the Passover that was to that designate the the time when they came again out of Egypt, and they were the angel of death passed over all the Egyptian houses in Egypt because they had applied the blood of an innocent lamb on their doorposts. So this is something that's very, very sacred and significant to the Jewish custom. And Psalm 113 would be recited during the evening prayers on the first night of Passover. And uh, that was done every year by Jews. And uh, so it was very much part of a rich tradition. And they had well-established and various melodies for each of those psalms that they would sing. Uh, Those melodies have been lost in time to us. So we look now at verses 1 through 3 
which is a call to praise, where the psalmist opens with, Praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time and forevermore. Notice he's going to say praise four times in the first three verses here, and one more time, uh, uh, three times in verse one, one more in verse three. And uh, he's also going to use the word Yahweh, which is Lord, five times in verses one through three. So four times praise, five times Lord. So we know what this is all about, don't we? This is about exalting and praising the Lord. But when we see this kind of repetition, this is the way of uh, of putting emphasis on in the text and bringing a, a spotlight onto the this emphasis, this repetition, and so forth. This is what it's about. We are to st- step up and praise the Lord, to give praise to God. And of course, the word praise can, carries the idea of uh, admire, boast in. So let it out. <clears throat> praise the Lord. When are we to do it? The psalm says, well, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised, and uh, praise the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So here's when we're to do it. We're pretty much just two different times from this time forward and forevermore. (laughs) So continually. And you know, sometimes in our thinking, we can just kind of go, ugh. You know, it's hard to give exaltation and praise to the Lord if you're struggling in this life and you're thinking even more so that maybe something's wrong, you're getting a raw deal, something isn't quite fair, uh, circumstances, other people might be favored, whatever you might be thinking here. God isn't giving you what you deserve in your mind or what you think you deserve or you maybe see God as distant or even a big disappointment and he hasn't come through and he hasn't shown up. And now we see the psalmist with this genuine excitement, praise the Lord, and he's all eager. And you just think, what gives? And so I would ask us, if this is us, if this is you, are you sure that you are seeing God clearly? Are you sure that you're rightly understanding him? Are you sure you got it right as you sit and assess assess your situation and summarize it? Are you really got the accurate picture of God? And that then reminds us then that praise to the Lord from our hearts, well, that's linked to our personal understanding and enjoyment of him. And so that has to be something we need to consider. Um, Our enjoyment of him is going to be linked, of course, to how well we know him. And so when we have kind of that ignorance, perhaps, of what God is, what he's promised, how he works, all of these kinds of things, his attributes, then we might be getting something wrong and we might start having a different focus or or a different take on all of this. And with that, there may not be that delight or that zeal or that vibrancy. Indeed, sin will complicate that our personal enjoyment of him too, as as we tend to then be a sense of uh, focusing on that, the guilt of the sin or the shame, or we think God must be down on me because I'm down on me. Uh, So it can become like this dark cloud hanging over. And so praise has a hard time puncturing upward through that. So it's really hard when we have failed or sinned or we're struggling in things to really relate to God's unchanging love for us. His stated desire that he would want us to walk with him and to know him and understand his character and such. Uh, And when we don't have that, that praise can be hindered. In fact, just remember, praise is not guesswork. It is rooted in the knowledge of him and 
by faith, trusting and knowing who he is in his person. In fact, this is all closely linked, as I think of another passage in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, where the writer there, Paul, tells us about, uh, the, about uh, humans who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's a natural thing that we do. We suppress as the hold down the truth. Maybe it's because we find it inconvenient or we don't like what it says or whatever. We hold it down, we suppress it, and we do it in unrighteousness. Now he goes on in verse 19 to say, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. And so we have an internal witness that uh, can, wants to connect to the our creator and an awareness of his existence. We have an external witness, the creation of the world, and his invisible attributes that are seen in our amazing world that we live in. How we see even here, all of this uh, design and this color, this variety in our nature and around the world we're living in, and the stability. The sun always comes up in one place. And so what would it be like if the sun decided not even to come up for two or three days or come up in the, you know, uh, in the opposite direction, etc.? So we have stability. We have design. It's an amazing world. And when we see an incredible painting, we, we want to give credit for a painter to a painter, and so it is with our world. We want to give credit to a creator, but Romans one twenty one says, though, uh, you know, in suppressing suppressing of this truth, it says because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice they knew God, and were they inwardly they knew. But they did not glorify him. And guess what that word glorify means? To praise him. They aren't going to give him that credit that he is due. And a reason here, perhaps, in this is because they were not thankful. That word thankful is a stem, stems from the Greek word charis, which is where we get grace. And so they're not having a grace perspective. And so they're not thankful. They don't see themselves as, as objects of God's creation, and, uh, and, and they are created actually in a personal and magnificent way. And instead, they pushed and stiff-armed and moved away from the Lord, and they weren't thankful, which means they thought something they weren't getting. They were getting a raw deal in some way or weren't being elevated appropriately or weren't getting what they wanted or whatever. And so we see they are not going to praise the Lord and this lack of thankfulness dampens, of course, any kind of praise or sentiment like that because some sort of grudge or complaint has been elevated now. Well, so here we see something that is completely awesome. We see the Lord and all of his attributes and his Godhead and his glory. And yet the, we tend to want to suppress that and look in the mirror instead and even then look with the sense of regret or being let down or somehow being ripped off. The remedy is going to come from that word grace and some sort of thankfulness, and that means to start and consider who God is. Understand that accurately. So in Psalm 113, this, this, this excited call to praise the Lord from the rising of the sun to its going down all day, all the time is the idea. 
Well, I love in the scriptures it always will will make some uh, suggestion of behavior like that, but then always gives us a reason. And verses 4 and 5, we have really clear reasons stated for this praise and this spontaneous exaltation. Uh, in verses 4, we, we're going to see two reasons that are related to his being, meaning uh, just the essence of who he is. Verse 4 says, The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high? And so we see this picture of God who's high above all nations. He is number one. Think of a sports fan. Sports fans are so excited about their team, especially if their team's highly successful. And they get even emotional and, and they're just exuberant and they're convinced about the quality of their team and to watch and be involved in this sporting event is exhilarating. And you don't want to be the person in the stands. Let's say you're at a, you know, a game seven of some uh, championship and everyone's excited and there's mayhem going on and celebration and cheering. And here, don't be the person in the stands that's sitting in their, 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 their uh, seat uh, crocheting a sweater or doing a crossword puzzle. Indifferent. You know, I remember taking a, a, a trip. I think it was, I can't remember if it was out west or something with our family, our three boys when they were younger, kind of like, you know, that, uh, 10, 8, 8 year old, whatever that age. Wonderful scenery, awesome countryside that we were driving through. And it was like, hey guys, look, look, look. And uh, they were just consumed in their video games that we had given them for the car, for the road trip. And you know, that was in the day when those video games weren't that complex yet. I mean, they were kind of Kind of not even that compelling, and yet, you know, this majestic countryside, we just can be finding ourselves consumed with something that's so much less. So his reason here, he's high above the heavens. And Israel, they were just a small country, in fact, small amongst their peers, like the, like the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the, even the Philistines or the Edomites and so forth. And those, those bigger countries, they were like in the big leagues and every country had their own God. And part of, part of even warfare was our God is bigger than your God and our God is better than your God. And Israel, one of the smallest countries, is basically saying, hey, our God is above them all, high above, above all of you. What a claim. What a boast. Verse 5, he goes on to say, Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? <laughs> Incomparable. He is holy and separate. He is not like a super God with a cape. No, he's different altogether. He is above and beyond all of it. And so, he is full of glory. In fact, uh, the other gods, they would often have human or animal representations of them. Uh, Dagon, the uh, Philist Philistine um, god, was half man and half fish. Or the Egyptians, they had all sorts of weird forms, you know, of gods, frogs and stuff. Um, and they were, all these were to depict their god. Nothing like that for the Lord Jehovah. He is incomparable. And so this helps our thinking. Okay, we pra praise the Lord because he is awesome. He is alone and distinct. He is holy and he rises above all things and he sits above it all. Now that's not very personal, but we get this view of the Lord here uh, when we see him in that, uh, that high and majestic place. Uh, I can understand why we might fear wanting to draw near him. 
In fact, perhaps maybe you're fearing to draw near him even now in your thinking because you consider this high view of him. Man, he's mighty and I know that I am weak. He's holy and I know that I've been sinful. He is all-knowing and I know that there's plenty I don't know or have been foolish. And we can get anxious then about what we don't know and so forth. And so maybe he then seems a bit distant. distant. And so... <clears throat> Maybe this is encouraging as our psalm then was going to want to have us reconsider our view of him. But so far what we've seen is the high, the Lord seated high above all. And there, there's a theological term for this. We call it transcendence. This is a, a, a idea, a theological term that is depicting God. And the term emphasizes this distinction of God from his creation and his sovereign exaltation over it. So it speaks of his authority and over his creation, and he's distinct from his creation. He is not part of the universe. He's not the sum of the parts of the universe. He's not the soul of the universe. No, he is eternal and uncreated and absolute and self-contained and self-existent and sovereign and creator over everything. And by him, all things exist and depend on him for their being. He depends on no one. So, we see some expressions of this in other psalms, like Psalm 8, 1. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 57, 5, we read, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above the earth. And so we see that the sentiment that's frequent in the Old Testament is this understanding of God and his high rank. But what's amazing is this high, majestic, awesome God who is distinct as the creator from his creation, yet that rank does not hinder his ability to look upon, be aware, and even rescue those in distress. And so now we're going to see a different picture of God. The first reason we're to praise and exalt him is because of, well, who he is and his being. Look at his transcendent nature. But then verse 6, we see a second reason, and this is entirely different. It says in verse 6, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. It's still part of the question. Who is the Lord like our God who will actually humble himself? The idea is will stoop down to behold the things that are on earth. And that is who our God is. Who does this? I mean, if you are that high and mighty and awesome and worthy of praise and the absolute supreme being, would you look down and into the world that is now broken and suffering and rebelling even against you? Boy, that's going to be a reflection here we're going to see of individual care and concern and awareness, and we're going to see it in full detail. How great is that? That means this great, awesome, mighty being is even more awesome as we see his interest in the things of us. He humbles himself. He is looking and stooping low to behold, and that's the reason why he is looking and be looking low, to behold to look, to be aware. In fact, that word is, carries the idea in the Hebrew of to look on with interest and kindness and a sense of helpfulness. He condescends to care. So 
This is another big theological word then that we can see. We first see that the Lord is transcendent and high and mighty and awesome, and now we see a word that he is imminent. He has imminence. Uh, it's a little different than imminent, which means soon. Imminence is a word that is used theologically to convey the idea of God indwelling or his creation and its processes. It's the counterpart of transcendence. Even though he is separate and distinct, he is personally present in the physical world in the sense he's omnipresent, and he has a personal uh, interest even in the, amongst us. I love Psalm 48, 14, where uh, the psalmist says, This God is our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide. So we see his transcendence and his imminence in the same verse. He's amazing, but he's ours. And he will be our personal guide. He's personally engaged because this is part of his nature as well, which involves his mercy and his love. And we particularly will see his mercy in this psalm. So we see then, praise the Lord, praise him, verses 1 through 3. And now we see verse 4 and 5. He is transcendent and on high, and yet he is humbling himself to behold the things on the earth. And now what is he doing? We've seen his being, now we see his doing, and more reasons to praise him. Amazing what we're going to read now. He says in verse 7, He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people, and he grants the barren woman a home like the joyful mother of children. Amazing. He raises the poor out of the dust. And the word here is like those who are outcasts, social outcasts, socially and in, in real need, afflicted, not healthy, lonely. And he raises them out of the dust. Secondly, he lifts the needy out of the ash heap. And the word really is the idea there of, of the rubbish heap, the trash heap outside the village or town. This is where the needy would go and ransack and crawl around this refuse heap looking for some scraps of food or something of value. Often they would sleep there as well. And if you've been in uh, an international travel, I've had the opportunity both in uh, Central America as well as in Africa. You see these trash heaps, they're very real and present today. In fact, when we have our conferences in Nairobi, the place that we stay to where we have our conference, we would drive by and there was a large trash heap. We'd go by it every day to and from and there are people desperate people working through picking through that and you just think lord have mercy on them and it's from that's exactly what he's going to do here in verse 8 7 he raises just such people he raises them up now he doesn't just raise them up to you know then prop them up and move them along their way verse 8 says that he raises them that for a purpose that he may seat them with princes, the princes of his people. That's the purpose of his stooping and beholding, is so intervene with his mercy here. As mercy is the idea of seeing this someone in a desperate strait or in, in a need situation and desiring to help, having compassion to intervene. And here is what he does. He raises these people up and seats them in a place of incredible honor and privilege where they will have fulfillment and satisfaction. They go from the lowest rank, lowest places, the trash heap, to the highest rank, seated with the princes and having dignity. A place of fellowship and enjoyment and dignity. 
and satisfaction. You know, 1 Samuel 2.8, almost verbatim, is what Hannah prays in her prayer as she was a barren mother. She prays and she says of the Lord, He raises the poor in 1 Samuel 2.8, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among prison princes. And he makes them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon him. See the end of the verse? Transcendence. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He created it. He's sovereign. He's master. He's high. And then he lifts the beggar, and he will make them inherit glory. Similar sentiments can be found in Mary's famous Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 things about the Lord, both in his transcendence and his imminence. Thinking of Mary, thinking of Hannah, these are two women that are about to have children, and that's the last part of his blessing in Psalm 113 and 9. Reasons to praise the Lord, he, he will stoop and behold, and therefore raise the poor out, lift the needy, and seat us with princes, and then also grant the woman who is barren a home, lifeless. But now she'll be as joyful as a mother of children, and there'll be life. And so we see how he grants the barren woman a home, and how much in that society, especially in, in cultures of past, uh, barrenness was such a, pro, uh, uh, a trial for women. I mean, it is now, but it was just like a, a very heavy status, very unfortunate status. Proverbs thirty fifteen through 17 is... Uh, uh, philosophically saying the, the leech has two daughters, give and give, and these are, th- are three things that are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. So what are the three or the four things, four, that never say enough? The grave was one. The second one is the barren womb. The barren womb <laughs> never stops desiring, never says enough, but always has that hope. And so we see then this barrenness is, is really a, a, a place where, we, where culturally it was so important to have children and there was perpetual shame and frustration in this. And yet here he lifts that barren woman and brings her into a, a home as a joyful mother where there'll be contentment and no longer yearning. There will be satisfaction. There will be fulfillment and there's life. So, one of the things we have to stop and wonder, though, is, hey, this, this description is not universal. I mean, every poor person, every beggar, every barren woman isn't been lifted up. Isn't this just teasing us? Isn't this an indication that, that God will rescue us out of every circumstance? Isn't that what he's you know, hinting at here? And then we clearly know that he's not because we still have poor people and outcasts and there are still barren women in the world and trash heaps all over. So how is this relevant? Well, God beholds us and what does he see? He sees that life is hard. He sees that he's, his gracious care and attention uh, is there, his imminence to compensate for that and to rescue us and to take that away. So obviously, since there's still this presence of poverty and presence of all these things in the physical sense, that the meaning of this is beyond that physical. There's, it's metaphorical or figurative. We know who the Lord is, the high and mighty, awesome creator, we generally know who the poor and needy and barren are in our physical sense, literal sense in the world, but obviously this psalm is reaching beyond that understanding. So who are 
then in the psalmist's eyes, the literal, the poor, and the needy, uh, the barren, and so forth. Well, to help answer that, the verse is going to help portray them this downward and then upward sweep. I can't help but think as the spring is coming, we know that in some parts of the United States, they're expecting a huge invasion of cicadas, those insects that swarm everywhere and make lots of noise. Or in our neck of the woods, we have army worms. Every maybe uh, 15, 20, 25 years, there'll be that one spring and summer where there's millions and millions of these worms and they crawl in, in unison and eat all the vegetation that's just blooming. Well, there's millions of them, thinking of those army worms from, and or cicadas, and they're from our vantage point from above, they all look the same. They're not appealing at all, even disgusting, and they cause mass destruction. Everything is negative when we think about it. And so our vantage point would be kind of like that transcendent view as we look down on that. And so we also know that God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. In fact, the imminence is the display of his love. This is where we see his greatness, as his transcendence is mixed with this imminence. God sees the poor and needy, and he sees the people on the trash heap, and he hears the cry of the barren, and he sees people that are burdened and are down in the, you know, from the, in the dust. They're overwhelmed, and he, he doesn't just pick the one up but send them along. He brings them in with the princes and seats them there. Wow, that's his imminence. It's like you reaching down and taking up an army worm, placing it in your home. Now, God is transcendent, yet he's imminent. He shows mercy then toward the poor and the needy and the barren. Mercy is moving toward the pain with a compassion and desire to help. So think of humanity like the army worms or the cicadas. That's us. Mass movement, mass interactions, and within all of these swarms of cicadas and army worms of human beings, there is hurt and cheating of one another and oppressing one another, and there's abuse to one another, and there's selfishness and greed and we're hurting one another. And the whole thing is broken and sin is abounding everywhere. And therefore, all of us are barren, spiritually lifeless. All of us are poor, no spiritual credit to our name, as sinful people guilty. All of us are on the trash heap, just trying to scrape by, seeking some advantage and some th we can pick and find and gain over others. We have no wealth. We have shame. We have lacking dignity, miserable in this place. We were created for much more than that, but here we are, fallen in our world around us. Every one of us, and the one who thinks they're not, is just pride and even more arrogant sin. So here we are, broken together in the same canoe, all the same. Looking down, God sees this mass of humanity, not that much distinction even amongst us. But God in his imminence, oh, that's much different. He now stoops below, he sees all of this pain, and he hears the cries. Even though the sin is an outrage to his holiness, it's an outrage to his righteous standards, it's rebellion, and he has legitimate indignation and wrath that arises. And he has a, this the, the need that we have, though, at the same time on earth, this fallen humanity stirs his compassion at the same time and his mercy to move toward the pain. So how does these, do these two things get resolved? Why doesn't he just fix all the suffering? Why doesn't he just make it go away? His justice could hammer down. But then on who? If his justice, he's going to make it all go away, who does he then have to hammer down his justice upon? Well, the one who wronged you, yes. The one who sinned against you, yes. The one who's mistreated you, 
preach on. The one who's abused you, yes. The one who's lied to you, get him. And so he does. But then there are others still on earth. In fact, some of them have been wronged by you. Things that you've said or done. And so God then has to take care of you and justice as well. And then this just goes on like dominoes until it hits all humanity. All of us are in the same category. Don't you see that? All will be punished in God's justice. The wages of sin is death, separation. God then in his transcendence has an awesome, holy, perfect dwelling. And we are not in any way able to be a part of that in our fallen sinful state. Now, we don't want that. I don't want him to come down with justice on me. I just want you to come down on them. I want mercy and grace and forgiveness. I love that concept. Tell me more. But in order for you to have that mercy and grace, it would have to be made available then for everybody. Otherwise, the domino effect makes it impossible. So if it's true for you, it needs to be true for everyone, including those who you might consider your enemies. So transcendence, God is high and holy and just. His wrath is hot against sin. But what does he do? He stoops down and he enters the world and our humanity as one of us. He becomes an army worm or a cicada, yet perfect and sinless and distinct and holy. Man, there was never a man like this. And there he dies on a cross and he takes our sin upon himself. And God the Father furiously extinguishes every last drop of his rightful wrath upon his own son, the holy Jesus Christ, who knew no sin but then became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5. And this is indeed love. He's demonstrating his love for us as he is making the sacrificial payment and being the substitute, taking out the penalty of our sin. If you hate the injustice of this world, the oppression, the wickedness, the things we read in the, in the headlines or the things that have been done even to you, how much more does a righteous, perfect, holy God hate that sin and has a, an unimaginable fury and holiness and wrath against it? And think of the billions of people and the billions of sins and all of that injustice and wrath and all of that righteousness and that righteous wrath comes down full force on the cross, and Jesus Christ absorbs it all, deserving none of it, but feeling and taking all of it. For three hours, he was separated. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he absorbs the price for your sins and mine. And the result, God's holiness is satisfied. By Jesus alone, in his death, God's justice is satisfied. He resurrects to prove to the world that he's accepted the payment. Penalty paid, it is finished. That's the victory cry of the cross. And then another miracle. After he was buried, three days later, he resurrects and he's alive. He's victorious today, now. He has conquered sin and death forever and is offering victory and life free to any who will take it. This is his imminence. The mercy has moved toward the pain, has satisfied the justice and the transcendent wrath, but his mercy and his imminence now can provide the rescue. And it's for who? Anyone. Whosoever believes. Sins were paid for, all of them, and life is now offered as a gift to all, received by faith alone. He will raise you out of the dust. He will lift you off the trash heap. He will seat you with princes. And you will no longer be barren, but you will have life. 
What an amazing truth. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 shows us this as well when it says, He made, he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We're on the trash heap, friends. We all are. But God, verse 4. Aren't you glad it says, but God, not but you, or but your spouse, or but your job, or your bank account, or but your politics. No, but God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were barren, dead, and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, verse 6 says. That's Psalm 113 right there. He raised us up, and we sit with Christ in heavenly places, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, his undeserved kindness, toward us in Christ Jesus. And verse 8 goes on to say, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. You're the trash heap garbage one, right? We're the sinner. But we're saved through faith in Christ. And this salvation is the gift of God, the verse says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, Matthew 26 tells us about the last night of Christ on earth, the night of the Passover. Uh, it was in the evening. He's soon to be arrested. He will be charged. He will be on a cross by noon. And they're celebrating the Passover with his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 29, at the end of that meal, Jesus says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you at my Father's kingdom. So he's looking to that future. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When they had sung a hymn, they sang psalms together at the Last Supper. That's part of the Passover celebration in the lit uh, liturgy. And what did they sing? They mo almost certainly sang the Egyptian Haleo, the custom, and it would have been uh, Psalm 113. He would have sung that psalm, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. He's arrested, and the end comes in hours. He sings that psalm and then steps out into fulfilling it. And now we should be able to see, friends, who's the poor and the needy and the barren of Psalm 113? It's all of us. All of us. Humanity and our spiritual poverty and death. Yet loved by God in his imminence. And this then is relevant to us, to each of us. Jesus has come for the likes of us. And so the psalm ends in Psalm uh, uh, verse 9, praise the Lord. Starts with praise the Lord, ends with praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Why? He's who he is. He's high and he's awesome, transcendent. And our thinking hopefully then can be calibrated to spiritual reality. Not looking in the mirror at ourselves or trying to focus on what is, you know, what we think is the raw deal, but focused on him seeing him in the, the high and mighty and the creator God in his glory. And 
that he then imminently stoops into our world, sees us, and moves toward that, and provides the ultimate solution and gift and new life. What grace. His majesty does not nullify his grace, and his grace does not undermine his majesty. His transcendence and imminence are on display. So what? What does it have to do with me? Well, I think of Daniel chapter 10, verses 8 and 12. Daniel had this tremendous vision, and of, of and it's a vision of the Lord and his glorious transcendent being. And he says, therefore, when I saw this vision in Daniel 10, verse 8, I had no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, Daniel goes on. While I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face. My face is to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have been sent to you. And while he was speaking his word to me, I stood trembling, and he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. How amazing is that? That's Jesus. And Daniel is properly, completely without strength and the transcendent glory of Jesus before him, and yet then Jesus imminently comes to him and touched him, and told him he was greatly loved, how he was personally sent to him, and he was told to not fear. Your prayers have been heard. So what? What does knowing that do for your day today or your walk tomorrow? That's unbelievable what that could do as we mix that with faith and know that we're like Daniel. We're not, he's not, we too are loved, etc. You know, what happens to uh, John the Revelator in John 1, 17, he has this amazing vision of Jesus and sees him in his glory. And he had also, it says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. You know what happens to uh, the three disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration, and they see Jesus uh, truly in his glory. Incredible. And they were afraid they had fallen in their face first. They are proper response to the glorious majesty of the Lord. And yet Jesus approaches them and touches them and says, do not be afraid. So, so what? That amazing, awesome, glorious, perfect creator God who's above everything has stepped into your life and your world if you're saved here tonight and you're listening to this today and says, do not be afraid. I am here. You are mine. What can that, how could that change our step and put a bounce in our step? I just, it's amazing. We belong to him. We are objects of his mercy and we are loved so much. He died for us, removing our sins. So let's not fear. Friends, have you ever believed on him? If you believe on him, you will never perish. You will not be spiritually barren. You can be taken off the trash heaps of this world. How? By simple faith. By entrusting your eternal destiny into his hands, trusting his work on the cross, his promise, his indescribable gift. It is by grace, and it is a gift of God. 
at a moment in time, you believe that and you believe in him alone as your ticket for eternal life and you're saved, forgiven and given life. Has this been true of you? And for those who are saved and are listening, may I just encourage you to think as the, uh, to take in both rather his transcendence and his imminence. In a fresh way, let's marvel at, praise this high and mighty God and give him proper uh, glory because we're seeing him accurately now. We're seeing him as high above anything and everything. And our, our petty complaints, this is not, that we don't want to go there. We want to go at his feet and to his glory. And then we also, in the eminence of him, will be comforted by the touch of his hand, his personal love, and a relationship to enjoy. So may that impact your day and your walk and your thoughts. May I leave you, I know we went a little longer today, I'm sorry, but may I leave you with this promise, believer, Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's waiting. Let's go. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. How worthy you are of our praise. Endless praise. Forevermore praise. If we have any barrier in our thinking that we're not seeing that accurately, I just pray you can wash that away so we are just left standing and beholding you and just stunned by your excellence. And at the same time of that overwhelming view of you, we know your eminence too, and you are personal. And you tell us to not be afraid and that you are with us. We belong to you. What an amazing thing. How did this happen? By Christ choosing to die for us and provide for us, taking care of the justice and wrath that was against us, and then dying in our place, providing through resurrection life. So we praise you for that, Father. May we enjoy this resurrected life. May we walk in it, and may we find ourselves even coming to your throne and finding grace to help in time of need. We praise you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.